I, I can't really separate the concept of teacher and parent, really, because the more parents know about how children learn, the more effective they can be at helping their child develop. Hi, this is Liz Weaver, and you are listening to the Learning Success Podcast, an information-packed podcast with the latest news, information, and tips to help you overcome a learning difficulty. For anyone suffering from a reading difficulty, writing difficulty, a math difficulty, a focus problem, dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, or ADHD, this is the place for you. The Learning Success Podcast is brought to you by LearningSuccessSystem.com. Hello and welcome to the Learning Success Podcast, where we learn to embrace your child's brilliance and unleash their true potential. I'm your host for today, Phil Weaver. Today we have Dr. Chris Drew. Dr. Drew completed his PhD in education in 2014 at the Australian Catholic University. He is currently an instructor at Swinburne Online University, you can correct me on that if that's the wrong pronunciation, where he teaches early childhood studies with a particular interest in learning theories, 21st century approaches to education, and educational technologies. He is the editor of the Journal of Learning Development in Higher Education, which is a journal focused on research into how to support university students through their studies. And he runs the blog HelpfulProfessor.com. He initially started the blog to teach his students study notes, but it's now taken on a life of its own. He now writes on all sorts of teaching and learning topics. Welcome, Dr. Drew. Thank you for having me. That's fantastic. So this subject is really fascinating. We're going to talk today uh, about the different types of play and and uh, play-based learning. So why don't we start off with, um, I, I know you've, you've um, developed quite a list of types of play and defined it into different types. What was your motivation for defining so many types of play? What, what's the benefit of that? Well, primarily it was for my university students who, okay. um, well, I mean, the entire blog that you and I kind of connected on was for my university students who sort of were, uh, um, I teach 21st century learning um, to my early childhood study students, and uh, they would uh, consistently come and say to me, oh, Chris, you're, uh, you're assigning textbooks and journal articles that introduce these topics like play-based learning in really complex academic ways. So I thought I'll come, come up with a more um, easy-to-digest uh, list of play-based learning approaches that my students could uh, could read and could use to uh, sort of conceptualize play-based learning in um, in new ways. Um, one of the sort of challenges that I have with my um, with teaching my students is moving beyond the idea that play-based learning is good because it's fun to play-based learning has cognitive benefits and social benefits um, and uh, a whole range of holistic benefits for ch- children's learning. Um, and when you look at different approaches to play-based learning, um, you'll see that there's uh, different benefits and different weaknesses of each different approach. Um, different approaches might be better for different children in different circumstances, um, uh, at different stages in their life or different stages in what they're trying to learn. Um, so these 17 different types of play-based learning, six of them are from um, Parton, who came up with her stages of play, and then the others are ones that have sort of been um, introduced by different theorists over time. Okay, great. So, uh, and who are your, your students that you, you teach online u- university? And so who are your our students? 
Yeah, so my students, it's in, um, based in Melbourne, Australia, they're all early childhood study students. A few of them are uh, studying to be sort of elementary school teachers, but mostly early childhood study uh, students. Most of them are actually um, uh, something you sort of pick up on online teaching is most of them are mature age students, so in their late 20s into their 30s and 40s. A lot of them actually very, very um, uh, well-versed in, in teaching theory because a lot of them are... Um, educators themselves and have been educators in early childhood settings and they're sort of just trying to off-skill themselves. Okay, so... Um, so that's so, some very interesting discussions in our online classes because they're... Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Well, I was just saying because they're, they're all, all incredibly... Um, uh, you know, they're not starting from, a, from nothing. Right, right. So you yeah. have... So you have a, a certain percentage that are going into that will be elementary teachers, and then the others will be researchers, or uh, uh, the others will usually. So one thing that happened in Australia recently is they've uh, they've required early childhood educators to also have um, upskill, you know, try to get degrees in early childhood studies as well, uh, okay. because of the focus on you know the years, ages two to five is so vital. Um, for you know a, a strong foundation for learning, I I see. So so that's is that something new in Australia that that they're it's quite recent. Yeah, maybe last seven or eight years. I I see. Okay. So yeah. um, so how is this the, this information? Obviously, um, how does it how does it help teachers? Are there um, how does it t- help them in the classroom? Uh, well, um, to go back to the, the points um, on different types of, of play um, having different value to teachers, we want teachers to be able to sit back um, and observe children playing and, um, and understand what sort of play they're doing, what stage of play they're at, and if they're at, say, um, one stage of play, they can assess their development, the student's developmental level and say, well, what now can I do um, in order to help the child move to the next level of play? So, for example, in a moment, we may talk about how solitary play is usually the first type of play you observe a child um, doing. And how can we move that child on from solitary play to the next step of play where they might have a little bit more social interaction with other children? I see. And they, so they could, uh, teachers could actually develop tactics for or moving between types of play? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, often in class we'll talk about, um, you know, the students might have been in, in, a, in a classroom during the day and then they'll come to our class of an evening um, and talk to us on the forums and they may, um, we may be able to talk about what sort of play those students, their students have been doing that day or that week. And we might say, well, maybe those children have been too focused on one form of play. And if we try to get them to look at, um, Another form of play, what benefits might, might, might be we able to get in that classroom if we shift them over to another form of play, if, that, if, if we've been too focused on just one type of play. Okay. And do you think for, for parents, just understanding these types of play, just, just understanding is beneficial? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I, I don't think that, um, you know, parents are the first educator of the child. And I don't, don't right. think that... that uh, uh, we should, yeah, we, should, we shouldn't say, you know, I, I can't really separate the concept of teacher and parent, really, because the more parents know about how children learn, the more effective they can be at helping their child develop. That's a very interesting statement and not even separating 
um, I like that a lot. Okay, great. Um, and so, of course, if they know about it, they can then start developing skills, just like you were talking with the teachers and moving them through types of play would be yeah. the idea. Okay, great. Um, so let's start with, with the very first um, number one, you, you list uh, unstructured play. Can you just define that? Yes, yeah, so unstructured play usually is play in which children generally don't have any set objectives during their play, and it's usually child-led. So um, we're about to contrast that to structured play, which is the second one on the list, but unstructured play lacks an, an objective, usually lacks a, um, a, a parent or, or teacher telling the child exactly how to go about their play. Um, so unstructured play is something you often see in early learning centres, um, where children are given, we might call it free time, where we put them into a, uh, a learning environment with a lot of, um, you know, a resource-rich learning environment, a lot of uh, building blocks, things to climb on, things to play with, and children are sent out to sort of um, uh, explore and see what, what they can do um, during their unstructured play experience. Um, some of the benefits of unstructured play, um, it, it can be really good for creativity. Uh, we can sort of um, stifle children's creativity if we, if we are too um, interactive and too interventionist in a child's play. Um, so to give you an example of that, uh, maybe if you're playing with a child um, and the child is, is building something using some Lego blocks, um, if we keep intervening and trying to tell the child, well, no, that's not how you're supposed to build these Lego blocks. You need to follow the, the list or the, the instructions. Um, then the child may not be able to use their own imagination to create their own um, life worlds, their own worlds during play, because they're always being told, no, you have to do it in a certain way. You have to do it in a certain way. And, you know, um, going back to maybe Sir Ken Robinson, I'm sure many people who are listening may have heard of Sir Ken Robinson. He has that very famous TED talk about how, school has this uh, strange ability to, to stifle creativity. Unstructured play is a way in which we can encourage children to, to just be spontaneous and creative and not have these constraints that we sort of try to enforce on children quite often. Okay, so we're kind of in, in a world of, um, you, hear, you hear the term uh, helicopter parenting or tiger parenting thrown, thrown around, and it seems to me that it, it might be difficult in today's world for parents to even just allow that. Um, I mean, obviously, is there something that parents can do to, to just get playing better at it? <laughs> I mean, I obviously, they, obviously they, they gotta just step back and do nothing, but I know that's hard. <laughs> it is hard. I mean, I was literally, um, about a week ago, I was with my father and watching him, him interact with my, uh, I, my nephew, his grandson, and dad kept jumping in um, and trying to tell my grandson exactly how to, how to play. Um, and then I was sitting back and not watching it. And I noticed that we had, I was thinking how we had different styles when we were with children. Uh, my style is a little bit more of the unstructured style and his style is a little bit more of the structured style. And it's not necessarily that, that one is better than the other. Um, it's simply that if we can reflect on um, our own style and our own play, approach to playing with a child, then maybe we can say, okay, maybe next time I'll step back and, and or maybe next time I'll step in a little bit more to try to sort of mix it up and give them opportunities and different types of play where they can have different um, experiences. So we need to assess our, our own strengths and weaknesses uh, to allow the, the child to be more, uh, have different types of play then. 
Um, yeah, we have, you know, I, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I, I taught um, Kung Fu for 20 years in a school and that, that's something, the intervention, we actually built the building because most martial arts schools, you have the, the mat area, then you have a half wall and then the seating area for parents. And we just did not, because that was, there was so much intervention that we saw, we actually built the entire building with the mat area, the connection to it was a long hallway with an obstruction in front of it. Um, because parents, you know, they, they just couldn't help, but in trying to instruct their parent, their, their, their kids from the sidelines. And I know that's, you know, you see that in baseball, you know, sports and that sort of yeah. thing. So it seems yeah, to me like it's a real skill that, that parents have got to develop. Yeah. And, and I mean, later on in the, in the list, there's one called risky play, which again, um, My favorite. Uh, we can talk about <laughs> later, but often, oftentimes we'll, we'll try to intervene in order to prevent, prevent your child from hurting themselves or prevent your child from taking risks. And maybe, you know, I don't, I don't want to sort of interrupt that discussion later on, but that, that may be a reason why we don't like constructive play as well. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what, um, I guess speaking of risks, is it in unstructured play, is it common for a child to not push their boundaries? Um, or do, are most children always exploratory and, and would that indicate some sort of a problem if they didn't? Hmm, I would be, I'd be hesitant to say it would indicate some sort of problem. Um, uh, but I mean, I can't fully answer that question uh, in terms of whether or not children are more inclined to take risks or not during play. Um, one thing I would say, though, is that as, as an educator, um, or personally as an educator, I would like to encourage children to take risks um, uh-huh. because it, 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 it helps children to develop certain skills that are really necessary in the 21st century. Sure, sure, right, yeah. okay. So let's jump into the second structured play. Can you define that then? So structured play is almost the opposite of unstructured play. It's probably common play, um, which is um, essentially usually led and set by the adult. So we might also call this adult-led play as well. Um, so in unstructured play, the play scenario would have very clear objectives. Um, it may adhere to curriculum requirements, and that's one of the reasons why we'll very commonly see um, structured play is that um, that we as educators need to follow a set curriculum that's been given to us by our governing bodies. And if we have too much unstructured play, if all we do is unstructured play, then the children aren't going to learn the set curriculum requirements. Um, another really common and positive reason why we do need structured play is that um, parents stepping in or adults, uh, teachers stepping in and, um, and stimulating children to think about certain things during their play scenario is necessary and would often call where a a teacher would observe a child playing moment the child might be playing with some some marbles or some beads and a teacher might say teachable moment to talk about or or any sort of you know whatever the child's at Um, and they'll jump in and and use that opportunity to um, to teach the child something new so structured play, we'd like to think of it as usually the teacher having a goal about going into the, to the play scenario and then the teacher will um, 
will use their language and use their modeling to help push that play scenario um, to, to a certain, a certain um, end goal. Um, examples might be anything from any real lesson in which involve, involves play and discovery learning um, and that has a, an, a set objective at the end of it, or even things like um, board games or you know playing a game of memory. It, it has structure, it has purpose, it has rules. Um, which is very different from unstructured play where children are sort of just running around and, and, uh, and, and doing what they want with the environment. Great, great. So you can, so um, following rules is obviously one of the benefits. What else, um, what other benefits are they going to have? Okay, so um, one, another benefit may be teamwork, for example. Okay. Um, and I'll probably touch on this later on as well, but when we have structured play where children are given given roles within the team, they learn sort of compromise and um, and, and to collaborate with other children, um, which would probably be more observable during a structured play environment than an unstructured play environment. Okay, great. I know in, in a lot of children with um, specific learning disabilities, one thing that always comes up is um, a problem following multi-step instructions. So is this something that you would be highly beneficial for that then? Um, yeah, and the next one where we, which would be guided play uh, in the next step would be something that an educator would, um, uh, it would come in during guided play with this, this breaking play sessions up into chunks. Okay. Um, to help children to be more, um, to, to sort of follow it, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's jump into, into guided play then. What's the difference between the, the structured and the guided? Okay, so guided play was actually a concept that the researchers came up with when they were talking about the sort of the challenge between structured and unstructured play and where um, unstructured play has some huge benefits for, for creativity, but structured play is obviously necessary if, if we want to take sort of a social constructivist approach where we believe that educators have a role in progressing children's development. Um, guided play was sort of theorized as this in-between, between structured play and unstructured play, where the children lead and direct the play um, scenario, yet adults uh, um, follow along with the child get involved in the place situation and during the play ask, ask questions, um, uh, provide prompts and suggestions to help stimulate learning. So it's different from structured play is that it is child-led yet it still has an adult intervening. Okay, so the, 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 the adult would basically sit back and look for opportunities to move them towards their goals or to teach Yes, absolutely. So um, the most common thing that we would usually see here is, is the concept of scaffolding, the adult um, observing the child's developmental level. They may even sit back for the first five or 10 minutes of play, and then they'll step in and they'll start um, uh, uh, trying to sort of nudge the child in certain directions to sort of stimulate f further thinking or deeper thinking about the topic. Okay then uh, would that commonly be then an opportunity to, to step back again and, and kind of transition back back and forth? Uh, yeah, often. So for example, in the Montessori approach to education, 
Um, I, I think many Montessori educators would often think they would be, be an ideal. I know Montessori likes to sort of say the less intervention from a teacher, the better, but when we're sort of helping a child to sort of come to terms with or a new idea, the teacher would often stand back, observe, maybe to come in and help the child with sort of stimulate some thinking. And then in the next lesson, they would introduce new materials based upon their observations. Um, so that's sort of the Montessori teacher stepping in and stepping out, stepping in and stepping out, okay. um, which we might consider to be guided play. I see. Okay, good. So so mixing these is, is a, and having skills to mix them seems to be a benefit then. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So what about unoccupied play then? Can you define that? Okay, so this is stepping into the um, Parton's six uh, stages of play. So Parton, um, she was a researcher back in the, I think it was the 1930s. I think she wrote, this, wrote her dissertation in 1929. And then through the 30s, she, she did a whole lot of studies on children's play. And she came up with six different approaches to children's play. Uh, and they seem to be in stages. So one emerges and then the next one emerges at different ages. So unoccupied play is the one that we usually think of in the first three months of a child's life. And this is sort of play that um, where children uh, or babies really don't, um, uh, they tend not to play with other children and they'll be specifically within their immediate environment. Um, they'll often have very little focus. So they'll pick something up, um, look at it for a second, play with it, throw it away. Um, and her idea of unoccupied play is usually uh, it's used in the first three months of life for children to develop their senses. Um, so develop an understanding of, of um, different objects, what they can pick up, what they can't pick up, how they can pick things up. Um, so those sort of initial introduction to the world steps. Um, however, you may observe unoccupied play, play throughout a, a child's life. Um, uh, in an adult maybe playing unoccupied play and sort of um, just just idle in their life and they're just playing with something. So these stages of play, even though they develop slowly, I wouldn't say that they, they you don't leave ever leave them. You can return to these stages as well. Uh-huh. So, uh, so an, an ad, you kind of cut out there for a minute, but let me clarify something. You said even in an, in an adult. Um, so... It, it, I tend to keep like objects on my desk that have no, no, no reason to be there, but I'll tend to do that. Is that you just pick them up and play with them? Is that a, is that unoccupied play right there? Yeah, absolutely. So another example of unoccupied play may be if you have children with, um, with autism, um, sorry, not autism, ADD in the class, um, they may require something to play with in their hands. So when I was a school teacher, I often have sticky tack, um, available so that the child, I'd give the child a sticky tack and they'll be able to play with it or some sort of massage balls that they could play with just to sort of keep them occupied. And I would probably consider that to be a big sort of occupied play as well. It's sort of um, idle fault to play. Um, but, you know, if your children in, in the very first few years of age, a few months of age, it is it, it, it has an educational purpose because it's, it's teaching them about their world. That's that's interesting. So the idea, I know those um, those little spinner things were popular, and then that got controversial. Um, so you seem to think that that sort of maybe not that particular thing, but that that idea of having something to occupy is beneficial for the cognitive uh, behavior. 
Personally, cognitive health, yes. Um, I'm not sure how beneficial it is as uh, but uh, in, in the, for early cognitive development of a child in the first one, three months is what um, Parton um, advocates. Um, just kind of going off, off, off script a little bit with, the ch with children with ADD, for example, in the class who've got those things to play with. And even sort of um, a heavy blanket on their laps is another thing as well. I found that those sorts of things were, were useful when I was a teacher for helping my students to concentrate if they, um, they had had ADD or ADHD, um, they often required something to feel with or doodle with whilst listening. Why do you think that is? <laughs> I don't know, but I, I, to be honest, I do it myself. Like when I'm I in do a too, meeting, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, I'll find myself scribbling and it, it helps me to concentrate for some reason. Okay. All right. That'd be interesting to know why, and maybe nobody knows yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I've also heard in those, in that early development stages when they're doing this unoccupied play that they're really, in a sense, developing a sense of self. What is them and what's not them through their senses? Is that um, yeah. kind of the, the, I the guess idea? That, that makes well? sense. It's not something that I've, I've, I've particularly come across in any of my research, but yeah, absolutely makes sense. Good, good. So, and also then, uh, um, seems they would be really developing a, a, their spatial senses, their proprioception yeah. and all of that. Um, that being said, I know like a lot of the, you know, our senses come together spatially. We see, we, you know, we obviously see things, touch things um, and even hear things spatially. And then that's very related. It, I know that's, that comes together in the hippocampus where the proprioception happens uh, and then that that section of the brain is also responsible it's also very connected to like starting uh memory and cognitive processes and even tied to memory or i mean even tied to, to emotions because it's, it's linked with the amygdala so um do you think that 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 process that those early processes is really stimulating all of that that's really interesting it's still something i've, I've come across the, the, the link to emotions um, so yeah, you, you obviously know more about that too. Um, I wouldn't dismiss uh, the, the idea that the sorts of that those early stages of unoccupied play um, have you know significant benefits more than cognitively. Um, that's something obviously that, that I would need to read some research into. Yeah, that's an, you know some of the um, I know like some of the early. Um, people who worked in specific learning disabilities would really advocate um, cross-lateral motions. And the idea was, is at those stages, the babies were developing, you know, for, first that idea of proprioception, and then their movements would be like unilateral, one hand, one foot, or right hand, right foot moving together. And then eventually they would develop into the right hand and left foot moving, you know, um, bilaterally. Mm -hmm. And so then they would uh, advocate and still do advocate these cross lateral motions for for development, even at, at later, you know, in, in teens and, and that. And they would advocate a lot of this for dyslexics and, and, and that sort of thing. So, um, okay, okay. That, um, anyway, okay, so um, solitary play. Let's go into the, to the next one. Okay. Can you uh, 
define the benefits. Oh, you did. You did talk about solitary play. Um, actually, let's jump into onlooker play. Okay, I'll, I'll just say one thing, quick thing about solitary play, which I've, I've, I've introduced slightly differently to un unoccupied play there. Um, okay. One thing about solitary play that I think Parton kind of separates from, uh, from unoccupied play is solitary play may be observable as being a little bit more focused than unoccupied play. Because unoccupied play we might see as, as just sort of fiddling. Um, when we move into the solitary play stage, the child may be a little bit more focused on what they're playing with. Okay. Um, I've got a little note there about um, Piaget, which is obviously one of the great um, education theorists, um, talks about children as lone scientists when they're yes. playing on their own. They're sort of doing their own forms of discovery and trial and error and making mistakes. Um, so I, I would sort of situate when I when I read about Piaget talking about lone scientists, I think of that solitary play um, uh, where children are sort of on their own, doing their own thing. So I think maybe even a child, you know, eight or nine years of age and they've gone out into the bush and they're playing with sticks and they're digging and things. That's solitary play. It's not social play at all, but they're learning a great deal about their environment at the same time. Yeah, that, that actually, the, that idea of the lone scientist, that actually struck me. That was, um, you know, I had, I, my family life as a child was, was not good. Um, but I lived in, uh, on, we were right on the beach in, um, in a forest. So I disappeared into the forest every day and I was gone and became that lone scientist. My, uh, I, as a matter of fact, I still have an, an artifact here that I would find these fossils and I keep them around. Um, so that's where I started was the lone scientist digging in the in the dirt and actually figured out how to find fossils. And then that led my interest into other forms of science, chemistry and physics and, and that sort of thing. So it seems to me that that lone scientist could really have some amazing benefits. It, it guided me. I, um, yeah. And I, I remember reading an article a few years ago now uh, about a child that was uh, considered to be unintelligent, essentially in class, and that teachers had written them off. And then this researcher, this ethnographer, I guess, followed this child around while they were playing at home. And the child actually did have some some incredible skills that were well beyond their age. It's just they weren't skills that were um, observable and accessible within the classroom environment. So this child had, had developed their own set of skills that were um, sort of just not regarded or respected within the educational environment. And that's something that you can pick up when you when you sort of follow this sort of lone scientist child around. They've got their own they've got their own skills in their own way. It's just that maybe sometimes it's not respected. Yeah, I, 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 I can I can seriously relate with that. Um, as in the first grade, I was I, I had social anxiety uh, and was accustomed to to just being that lone scientist. And I was put in remedial classes until, and what happened is one day there was, uh, I was looking over the shoulder of a friend at a, you know, the teacher was praising him for his math test and I was solving the problems in my head. And I, I just, for some reason, despite my anxiety, blurted out, I can do that. And the teacher kind of chuckled a little bit and handed it to me and I just did all the questions. So that was, I mean, that one event moved me from, being in remedial classes to being top of the class and 
I, that sounds exactly like your story. So I suspect that's not terribly uncommon. Yeah. And something, I mean, something that we haven't talked about yet about benefits of play is that it can help children develop confidence. I mean, it can help adults develop self-confidence as well, because you don't have, well, you often during play, you don't have someone sort of hovering over your shoulder and assessing what you're doing. You've just got that time and that free space to explore and discover. Um, so hopefully when we give children space to play, they can develop some of those softer skills as well, self-confidence, so that when they come into a classroom environment, they say, I, you know, I can do that. I wonder if that uh, confidence, the self-confidence that you might develop, like different types of self-confidence, like, so for ex in that story that I was telling, I was confident to wander around in the forest and swing from trees and do all that, but very anxiety in there. Could, I, could one form of confidence then translate into maybe the other yeah it's a good question okay um there's there is actually research on that on on um if you can take and a, a child that has and build a and and speak of their confidence in certain things and then just before another activity that they have no confidence to bring up that list and it, it's almost like the confidence is a chemical that goes through the body and get that chemical going and then it will jump into the other activity yeah that makes sense so that's interesting so um and then which brings us really segues right into the onlooker play because that seems to be building confidence to get into uh social yeah. type absolutely so onlooker play is something that i think uh many parents probably could relate to where um, a child will be sitting there and observing other children play, but not getting involved themselves. So this is quite a short period, um, sort of where I guess where we could say the child is starting to try to develop confidence to step into small social versions of play. Um, so the child may be sitting there and watching other children play and try to understand the rules of the game. Okay. So that when they develop the confidence, they'll go and do it themselves. So you'll often observe this with children who are, are shy and who um, might be at their first day at their new, new early learning centre. They may just sort of sit back and watch. And then once they feel as if they've got a good gauge of the environment and the ways in which things are working, then they'll slowly sort of introduce themselves to um, the rest of the children and, and to start playing with them. Do you think that that's probably in you know uh, generalizing in most cases better to let that process naturally happen and let let the onlooker play exist for as long as it needs to or to push the you know shove them in there yeah i mean potentially i uh I, one thing that i'm sort of reluctant about and this is again this is just me um, I'm reluctant to sort of say this is right and this is wrong when it comes to children's development. I think oftentimes we, we sort of try to, um, teachers and parents sort of get uh, sort of this anxiety about, oh, the child's not doing exactly what I want them to do or they're not exactly at the stage I want them to be at. And, um, and I, I, I would be reluctant to say, oh, your child's behaving abnormally right now because they're not getting involved in play. I, I think that every child's got their own journey um, and, and let that journey sort of play itself out. Okay. okay. Yeah. But that's just, I mean, that's just my approach for education. So I can't say that you know, based on any research or anything. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen the parents that, that just go 
shove them in there. And I've seen, uh, I know my, my wife's father was like that. And there's a lot of stories about that. And he uh, raised some very tough girls. So there's some benefits to that. So I, I don't know. It's, that's an interest. It's yeah. a, yeah. Um, uh, anyway. Um, yeah. so I'm certainly not the sort of teacher who says that there's a right or wrong way to do it. You know, I don't think that, that um, there's well, so I, many different ways of parenting and different ways of raising a child and, 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 you know, who am I to say what's right and what's wrong? Yeah. And I'm sure it's all contextual and, um, possibly having an understanding of the benefits of both ways is probably going to mm. help with that decision, I would think. So, yeah. um, so can uh, speak about uh, parallel play real quickly. Yeah, so parallel play is an interesting one. Uh, it's where we see we observe children playing alongside one another, but not actually explicitly interacting. And I can sort of link this up to associative play, which is the next one on the list as well, because I think they're very, very similar. Whereas parallel play might observe two children doing uh, a similar activity, they may even be sharing resources, but they're not talking to one another. They're not learning from one another. Um, so for example, you'll often observe this in siblings where you know the big sister and the little brother, they're both playing at the same room, but they're doing their own things. They've got their own goals, they've got their own interests. Um, and they may sort of look over at one another and they're in the same proximity to each other. So there may be some learning going on there from one another, but it's not explicit interaction yet. And they're, so they're not even really modeling each other. They're not. So lost you. There you go. You still there? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, you're back, back now. I lost you there. So I, I asked, uh, they're not even necessarily modeling each other. They're just kind of in the same room. Yeah, uh, that's kind of the, the general idea parallel play, but then when we move on to a social play, which as I said, it's very, very similar, uh, we're assuming the children are starting to interact. While they've still got their own tasks going on, um, they may talk to each other. They may ask each other, you know, what are you doing? Um, they may ask if, you know, if, if say they're two, painting two separate canvases. This is a sort of typical version of parallel or associative play, but they're both painting on two different canvases. They're undoing their own paintings. Um, in parallel play, they may be ignoring one another. They may take a glance at one another. In associative play, we'll observe them asking each other questions. How did you manage to do that? That struck paint. Oh, I actually used this this um, this brush. Maybe you should try this brush. Or, or how did you get that color? I mixed these two colors together. Okay, let's. I'll try that as well. So that's sort of the difference between associative play and parallel play. Is it associative? They start asking each other questions and, and, and interacting with, with each other a little bit more. Okay, so basically stages typically then, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so then um, so then we lead into cooperative play, and I, I can see lots of benefits coming up with this one. So can you speak to that one? Yeah, so, sorry, I just lost you a little bit. Um, so cooperative play is um, uh, essentially the last stage on partners, on stages of play, um, where she talks about them having a shared and common play goal. So here we can see that we stepped out of the 
it's the same game that they're playing um and they're 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 going towards the same conclusion in their play so it's fully interactive fully um uh engaged with one another another thing that they might do during cooperative play is assign each other goals um sorry assign each other roles so for example if they're sort of acting out their favorite disney characters one will be one disney character and one will be the other disney character and they and they play it through through the perspectives of those characters um, this will often require compromise and sacrifice from the children so sometimes a child may have to say um I'll, I'll, I'll take uh, this character next time and you, this time then you can take it next time. Um, or I'll, I'll be the good guy in this story and next time you can be the bad guy, uh, you can be the good guy in this story. Um, so you can obviously see huge benefits of this for social development for, these, for children. They start to develop, develop teamwork skills, leadership skills as well. If a child sort of says, okay, you're the leader or I'll be the leader for this, this specific activity. Um, and of course, when they've got that shared common goal, they have to work as a team to achieve their shared goal. It may be as simple as we're trying to build a hut out in the you know, backyard and we're using sticks and stones to build this hut. Um, they may have to work together in order to make sure that the hut is, is, is structurally sound at the end. Right, yeah, so this is, this is when social skills are really coming in strongly and uh, seems like negotiation would be one right there, right? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and obviously, cooperative play, you'll see it uh, in um, structured sports as well. We would consider cooperative play if they're playing a game of soccer, and that we would consider that to be cooperative play as well because they're following the rules of the game. If mm -hmm. They've got a dead goal at the end, and they have to do the ball to one another, et cetera, in order to succeed. Right, right. And so, yeah, they're really developing those at very high levels when it comes into the higher at, in, into sports and, and getting good at sports. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. Then um, that leads us into the next is symbolic play then. Can you define that for us? So we've, we've sort of moved out of um, Parton's six approaches now. So um, when we're talking about symbolic play, it's not got to do with those approaches that we discussed, which were the, uh, are sort of um, staged uh, versions of play that's leading to one another. We've moved out of that now, so just some other versions of play again. Um, so symbolic or pretend play is usually uh, play in which we see children uh, using symbols. Um, so a symbol may be, as example, um, simply using a, a block of wood and symbolizing it as a car and pushing it around on the floor, pretending that it's a car. Um, or another symbol might be pretending to uh, drink coffee like uh, mom and dad are drinking coffee but they've got um, just a, a, a plastic cup that they're pretending to drink out of so they're having tea party for example. So symbolic play, um, one of its cognitive developments is we can observe children when they're, they're moving into the symbolic play stage. They're, they've got the capacity to, to substitute one object for another object in their minds. So yeah. it's, it's this sort of emerging um, uh, new cognitive abilities that we can see when children are using symbolic play. So often in early learning centers, educators or the educators in the center will be watching for the use of symbolic play. And um, you'll, you'll often see in, in sort of, if you get a report card at the end of the, the term at the early learning center, it's something you'll often see that the, the, the educator is written down as a new development for the child and a positive development um, in those early years. Okay. so. Is um, 
is the fact that kids will play with their Christmas boxes more than the toys uh, a, a good sign that they're... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good sign if you, uh, if you want to start giving money you can buy something cheap and in a big box. <laughs> but, um, it, it's, it's also... It's also a type of play that um, that is is really important for when they're moving up into some of those higher mathematical skills as well. Because mm-hmm. this, this being able to substitute numbers for symbols is literally algebra. So it's, it's 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 this symbolism is something you'll see repeatedly throughout a curriculum all the way up into high school. Um, you know, in stories, for example, they've got we want children to be able to use metaphors. Um, in their stories and allegory and stories. So symbolism is, of course, very important for uh, mathematics and language and all sorts of different things in, in the future. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, we're basically abstraction machines. We, and um, n- not, even, not even algebra, but starting off at basic math, just, just a number represents a quantity of things. So that, that in itself is an abstraction. And just yeah, moving. exactly more higher and higher levels of abstraction um mm. and of course reading you know letters ready or even combinations of letters rep- representing phonemes and then combinations of that as a higher level of abstraction <laughs> into words that have meaning and then yeah, exactly. story and, the, and and all the way up into the very high art forms which are completely abstract right Mm, yeah. So, yeah, so it's interesting that often parents will will sort of say to their their educator, they'll say, "Oh, I, I'm worried that I'm not seeing my child develop." Um, but if we sort of think about these things like symbolism, and then we, we observe our children play, we actually can see our children are developing um, in ways that that sometimes we may not be able to, uh, we may not uh, initially observe. But when we think about some of these sort of forms of play and then we apply them when we, we observe our child playing, um, we can go, oh, actually, yeah, we can see, I can actually see my child developing week on week. I see. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so it seems like this is just a really, really important thing is, is developing this at the early stages and allowing that symbolic play. Um, mm, yeah. You know, I know like kids are, attracted to like you know like cartoons and when you have a cartoon you've got a you know a couple of circles and and dots and that's a a person Uh, is it that this level of it seems like maybe that level of abstraction allows them to concentrate more on the storyline by abstracting this out and not not having to process so much is that does that seem maybe correct that uh, abstractions help us cognitively in that way? Sure. I, I usually, there was a podcast that you did a couple of weeks ago with a, um, someone who was talking about how they used um, used art therapy. And I thought that the art therapy that they were using was, was also another form of abstraction as well, where they were, were sort of using the art to represent emotions. I thought, yes. oh, that, that could, it, just in, in a very similar way, it's a form, form of symbolic play. Yeah, I was I was fascinated by that podcast. I learned so much by yeah. how how emotionally powerful that was to abstract yeah. out into art or physical objects or what whatever. It really was. Um, and she's on to something there. Do 
Do you have a smart child who is struggling in school? Are you feeling overwhelmed? Do you feel like the struggle is holding your child back from their true potential? Maybe the anxiety and worry over your child's future just beats you down every day. You don't have to live that way. Learn how to stop a learning disability from becoming a life disability. A child with a learning disability is stressful for the child and the parent. The disability may be eroding their confidence and shattering their self-esteem. Other people may perceive your child as unintelligent and antisocial. If not addressed and fixed early, the child may develop permanent challenges later in life when looking for a good job or meeting a potential spouse. Our current school system does not know how to properly help our children, but at Learning Success, we do. We've created a system you can easily do at home with your child, and with just 15 minutes per day after school with your child, you can save them from a life of struggle and heartbreak. Learn how to unleash your child's potential and embrace their true intelligence. As a special gift for being a loyal podcast listener, we're going to give you a free trial of the Learning Success System. Try it out absolutely free for 15 days. If it is not the perfect fit to help your child succeed in school and in life, just cancel before the trial ends and pay nothing. You even get to keep the free bonuses. Go to www.learningsuccesssystem.com forward slash podcast to get your free trial now. You'll be so happy you did once you see the great grades your child is capable of getting. Imagine being so proud of your child when they bring home a great report card and hand it over with a beaming smile. Get your free trial now at www.learningsuccesssystem.com forward slash podcast. You've got nothing to lose except the stress and anxiety that is holding you and your child down. I'll see you there. Um, so then imagine a play, imaginative play. You want to define, define that for us? Yeah, sure. So this, this is one that we will see, we'll observe very often in children, uh, you know, from around about four years and up. Um, we'll often also call it fantasy play and sociodramatic play, where they're using creative fantasies and storylines in their own play. Um, if you give children a box of, of dress-up clothes, um, it won't be long until they're, you know, dressing up as firemen or fairies or princesses or whatever it is that they want to get dressed up as, and they'll sort of try to act out those storylines um, based upon their own sort of fictional worlds in their minds. So some of the interesting um, is that it, it helps children to try on different identities. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, pretending to be a fireman or pretending to be a police officer. They try on these different ways of, of being and acting within the world. Um, so it, it's, it's, again, another valuable form of play amongst all the other forms of play to help children develop these, these um, a, a range of different skills. One thing about imaginative play that I, 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 I mean, we'll talk about domestic role play in a minute, but imaginative play is different from do, uh, domestic role play because they're using their creativity and their imagination during their play in order to um, 
sort of situate themselves as the heroes in their stories and develop a sense of themselves um, and what they want to be when they grow up. Um, so that's sort of one of the huge benefits of imaginative play. And also, of course, um, secondarily, that is it helps them develop creativity in their thinking. Yeah, 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 definitely the creativity. So you, you mentioned trying on different identities, and um, that's really interesting to me. Um, I, 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 people don't talk about this a lot, but even within ourselves, we, we, we do have multiple personalities and, and can switch in and out. Um, I'll give you a really uh, extreme example is that um, me going up through the martial arts, I was, I had very, I was very fortunate in that I was very close to the grandmaster and, um, but I had different roles with him. So I was his student, but I didn't start off that way. I started off as his friend. He became a father figure. Uh, I became a student. So he became my, my teacher master. And then I opened a school, so he became, in a sense, a business partner. And I know for me, it was really clear cut which role I was in at any time mm-hmm. with a sing with a single person. And I see, I see that skill very not too much in people. And I also see people that, like for example that don't have the ability to jump between those roles or they'll try and stay in one role to take advantage of that role. For example, a student trying to be in the friend role rather than in the student in the student role. So um, I see that as a really powerful skill set, but a, a rare skill set. Um, right. I, it, it's, it's a skill that's required um, the, the skill to sort of jump in and out of certain identities is obviously a skill that's required uh, just in everyday life. So, for example, when you are at the pub, you're probably a different person to when you're at a job interview or when you're, you know, serving someone and you're, you're a server at a restaurant is going to be a different identity when you're at home with mom and dad. So being able to jump between different identities in order to situate yourself within certain and sort of socially acceptable uh, behaviors in, in different situations is required in order to sort of get along in life as well. So some, when we're sort of trying on different identities in childhood, we're learning about some of these social um, uh, expectations of, of how to behave in certain circumstances as well. Yeah, I know in a lot of top performers, like in uh, extreme athletes or especially stage performers, they'll, they'll very consciously slip into another identity and even name it Mm. um i think i heard a story about beyonce being because she had a very um uh she was a gospel singer as a child coming up so her getting on stage and doing all these provocative moves was very difficult for her so she slipped into another personality that had another name And, and this is very very common um among top performers but um I'm not so sure that it's common among or commonly known or I don't, do you have an opinion on that? About that as a skill, um, about being able to define well, that. Something else, yeah. Um, something else that I'll probably add to that discussion as well is that um, there's in, in sort of the sociology of childhood, if we step out of psychology for a second into sociology, 
you'd have a lot of people during this this stage of trying on different identities thinking well is is it possible that at this point at this stage we're enforcing certain identities on people as well um mm -hmm. what sort of identities are we allowing children to to sort of occupy within a classroom um so uh, the the most typical one that we think would think of is are we giving um are we enforcing gendered norms onto children during this imaginary place scenario? Are we only giving girls the opportunities to try on the princesses and not on the, the police officers or the firemen as well? Um, so sort of the, the so, there's a sociological aspect to both imaginary play and to to, um, to domestic role play, which is the next one as well. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, it seems if we play this out right, there's some real benefits. And if we play it out wrong, there's, some real problems there. Um, there was one experiment <laughs> I, I saw where the the um, they took children and they gave them a, a difficult task. I think that the task was not actually possible to solve, but one set of children, they were the control group just then, and then the second set, they told them, pretend you're this superhero. And then the third set, they actually put them in a costume for that superhero and that they what they found was that the the ones in the costume stayed at the task much much longer because that superhero that was his the identity, right? That's very interesting. Batman wouldn't give up or something like that, right? Yeah. So so it seems pretty powerful stuff here. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, and that, that's such a that's such a good. Um, uh, good uh, justification for why we might try to have these these sorts of um, dress up outfits and dress up box in the corner of the, the classroom as well. Something like I, that. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. I, yeah, I could see that as a great tool for for teachers. Mm. Um, really, I mean, I use I I mentioned before. I'm I'm pretty much very introverted, but I also teach kung fu, which means a lot of times I got to get up in front of you know fifty to two hundred people <laughs> and put on a show, and so you know of course I I just have my identity for that. Um, so anyway, I, I I'm a little bit passionate about this passionate about this as a skill set. So, <laughs> um, so it, uh, it's interesting to me the imaginative play, and then. Um, of course, that leads right into domestic role play. Um, so you could touch on that a little bit. Yeah, so domestic role play is, is in a sense almost the opposite of imaginative play, where children are um, are playing at uh, tasks that are still within their domestic um, realm, for lack of a better word. So this is when they're, pr they're practicing things like playing at housekeeping or cooking or doing yard work or pretending to be mom and dad. Um, this sort of domestic role play may have a bit of an imaginative element in it, but it usually involves children mimic, mimicking people that are directly, you know, uh, in, their, in their life. Um, now, something that's really interesting about domestic role play is it tends to be observed in working class and middle class children. I'm not entirely sure why that is. I'm um, sorry, could you repeat that? So domestic role play tends to be observed in working class children more than middle class children. So we'll, we'll observe middle class children doing those imaginative role playing where they're pretending to be, be, you know, heroes out there saving the world. 
whereas the working class children tend to um, more likely be observed doing domestic chores during their role play. Now, I don't know the reason behind this, but it may be a concern uh, if we're trying to encourage creativity amongst working class children. So if you've got, say, the consequences for a teacher um, may be that um, if the teacher is, is in a working class environment, they're observing their children in their play, not sort of being overly imaginative and creative to try to stimulate some more, more imagination during their play. Um, but as I said, I don't know why that's the case. It's just, that's what the research says. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And it's definitely definitely something that, that I mean, it seems like tactics should be developed to, to open that up into the imaginative play more. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, so yeah, we could, okay. Um, that's a pretty deep subject there, but we'll, we'll go on. Yeah. <laughs> um, digital play, also a very deep subject. Could you just briefly talk about the benefits and the, and the problems of that? I know it's, it, that's a whole podcast, several podcasts in itself. So let's, <laughs> yeah, I, I love the concept of digital play because it sort of ch challenges this, this idea that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not advocating one way or the other, but it's, we've got this idea that playing on computers is bad for children and children should be out playing and not playing on computers. Um, and then there's this, uh, this concept of, well, what about digital play? What are, the, uh, are children actually playing whilst they're on their computers, whilst they're on their devices? So um, what skills are being developed whilst children are playing on the devices? Are they developing multitasking skills if they've got to do many different things in a short period of time in order to pass the level in their game? Are they um, developing um, time management skills? Are they developing skills in reacting very quickly uh, to new things that are popping up in their games? Do they have to work in teams whilst playing games on their devices? Um, they may also have to develop very uh, fine motor skills if they need to use their mouse to sort of click in a certain direction in a very fast period of time or press certain buttons, a combination of buttons to achieve a certain move in their game. So digital play as a concept is there to challenge our assumptions that when children are on their devices, they are being idle and not learning. Um, now, of course, I would, I would also offer the, the counterpoints to that is that too much time playing on the device is uh, can be interfering with a child's physical activity and their health, um, their physical health. Um, and there's also the, uh, the challenges of cyberbullying, online predators. So there's obviously huge um, challenges of working with digital devices, but digital play challenges this is to think, well, what are some of the benefits of um, playing on computers and devices? Um, some things that we can think about in order as educators to help children to both you know, get, be introduced to the digital world and something that they're obviously probably going to need uh, for future jobs. Um, maybe, for example, making sure that the games that they're playing on their devices are cognitively challenging. So if they've been playing Mario Kart for the last five years, maybe they need to move them on to another game that's a little bit more cognitively challenging. Um, and using devices that are handheld devices that they can use uh, whilst outdoors, playing outdoors in order to get some of that physical um, uh, exercise whilst also um, using the device for whatever cognitive benefits the device may offer. 
Um, and with the emergence of certain things like, um, you know, my partner is really into this game right now, this Harry Potter game where you can sort of walk around outside and catch catch Harry Potter things outdoors. Right, <laughs> She's right. She's uh-huh. so much exercise at the moment. She's always walking around in the parks. I'm not getting exercise using those devices. So maybe we can think about how we can in- integrate digital play with outdoor play a little bit. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a book on uh, what is the researcher? The book is called Reality Is Broken. Broken. Uh, Jane McConigal talks a lot about that sort of thing about how to use the games and integrate it into other life and get it. Ben, uh, what other benefits? She's exploring what other benefits. So that's really interesting. Um, I, I know there's just a huge number of benefits through through uh, digital games, and they're they are demonized. Um, so one, one of the interesting benefits is um, just uh, object recognition, which um, the object recognition speed is a difficulty in a lot of dyslexics. So they actually found, there was one study where they found that reading was improved simply by certain fast-paced video games. So, um, uh, yeah. but on, on the other side of it is that in, in a podcast, something I learned with Chelsea Brown, um, she talked about the fact that because video games um, have all of these addictive qualities, you know, you get these rewards, whatever they may be, mm-hmm. your points or, or whatever, that one problem, which is not so obvious, is that kids can get used to learning in that very high dopamine environment. And they're not getting that in the classroom. So they get addicted um, to that type of learning, and then they they're going to lose focus in the classroom because of that. So I thought that was interesting. I I absolutely relate to that. Yeah, that's um, having not read any research on that, but from your description just then, I can can say, wow, that really makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, that sort of that, that that lack of concentration with with young children who are spending so much time on those highly addictive games. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just one or two other things that I could probably introduce just in this digital play discussion. Um, one thing that we often have fears about adults um, is children's, our children's play on computers and on their phones or whatever may be um, antisocial. Um, one really interesting thing that I read in a book, I think it's called It's Complicated, was uh, a researcher who looked at the ways in which children use their devices, and she went into adolescence as well, and the ways in which adults use their devices. And essentially her finding was adolescents especially use their devices in ways that appear to be far more social and positive than the ways in which adults use their devices. And her challenge was, how are we modeling device use to children? So children will, or adolescents will often be using their devices to um, socialize with their friends, to organize meetups, to share photos, whereas the adults would be using the devices often simply for to work whilst sitting at the check emails while sitting at the computer, uh, sorry, at the dinner table. Um, so think about the way in which you're using the device, device as well and whether or not your device use is, is positive, a positive model to children, I guess, is, um, is sort of the, the, the summary of that. A book, which really challenged me in my my thinking about the ways in which we should be using devices. Yeah, that that is actually very interesting. We want to model in everything, right? Okay, good. Yeah. Um, 
Let's skip over Risky Play, not because I don't want to talk about it, but because it's my favorite, and I want to just come back to it. Um, outdoor Play. Uh, it's really fascinating Risky Play to me. So Outdoor Play, the benefits of that. Outdoor Play and Risky Play is sort of ones that you probably want to talk oh, so, about. Okay, so should we not? Maybe we just shouldn't do um, that then. The outdoors okay. are often considered to be um, they're often considered to be the a riskier environment, which is why we often ch uh, are challenged to. Um, uh, we're often reluctant to let children go out and play. So, okay, do you so want to talk about outdoor play and risky play last, or just want to talk uh, about them now? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. That they're both yes, for sure. Um, let's jump to oral language play then, and then we'll come back to those two. Okay, oral language play. Um, we're talking about oh, children using um, language play is a term that we'll often find when we're teaching children uh, teaching in at university literacy uh, courses. So oral language play is essentially play um, that educators use directly to model language use. And the concept within oral language play is that play is an opportunity or one of the best opportunities to develop uh, language and communication skills. And the reason for that is play tends to be what we might call a more authentic learning environment where children are, um, instead of just practicing something, they're acting it out within a context. So they may have storylines and, um, and uh, um, events within their games that they need to act out. They may have a certain role that they need to take and when they're in that certain role that they need to take, they need to do certain language. So if you're the police officer in your play scenario, then you might be using different language than if you're the, the, the pretend thief in the play scenario, for example. Oh, uh, another reason why oral language play is important, uh, is valuable, um, is that during play, children hear other children using these words and these, these new phrases, and they'll pick up on those new phrases whilst they're playing with other children. So during play, the, the other child in the play scenario is, a, is, is the child's educator in a sense. They, they're learning from one another. Um, one other thing I might quickly say about oral language play is um, I tend to encourage my students at the university when, when they go out into their early learning centres usually or into their, their classrooms, um, try to model words during play. Um, it's as simple as when a child's first developing new phrases such as open and close, when you're opening and closing the door during play, use that word open, close, open, close, whilst opening and closing things. So they start to associate words with certain actions. Um, so yeah, language and play are, are deeply interconnected. Uh, yeah, okay. So um, I, I know like uh, it, it's been talked about in, in dyslexia that there's there may be a deficiency in Broca's area, which is the, and Wernick's area, which is the, the, the language centers. So um, is emphasizing oral play, is that gonna have a, you know, a, a neurodevelopment and neurogenesis and neuroplasticity effect on those? on that you think that if there's signs of maybe dyslexia that is that something that a parent should emphasize and and how would they do that uh, it's not a particular area which i i i would, would sort of claim any expertise unfortunately okay. um but i would kind of go back to um yeah i would go back to the the, the very significant and robust research that 
that that claims that um, one of the reasons why you would want to be sort of that guide or that inter person who's intervening during a child's play is specifically so that language is encouraged. The language mm -hmm. used is encouraged during play. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. And did we jump? Did we jump over sensory? Oh, we did. We did sensory play. Okay, sensory play. Again, this is another one that's quite simple and, and, and easy to, to sort of comprehend, which is essentially an educator trying to introduce sensory experiences during play, um, senses being taste, sight, and hearing. Um, so as an educator, one thing that you may want to try out, especially in the early years, is introducing different sorts of sensory uh, um, objects, smells, um, musical instruments even into the play experience so that children can develop uh, sort of holistically through all the different senses. So we might link this back to sort of um, multiple intelligence learning theories where different children have different styles of learning. We're introducing their play and we may have be able to sort of um, get through to a child in uh, whatever way that, that is most, uh, um, that, that they seem to be sort of drawn to the most. Okay, yeah, and I see like um, a lot of occupational therapists and in certain learning programs, again, that are remediation programs that uh, integrating sensory with, with, with um, academics such as, you know, drawing spelling words in sand and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I'm obviously coming from an Australian perspective. That's one thing that we often do with our Indigenous children. Um, is uh, that there, there tends to be, and again, this is just going back to sort of some research findings, that, that the Indigenous children would often take benefit from going outdoors and playing outdoors in environments that they're much more familiar with um, and sort of, you know, learning their letters by, by using um, sensory experiences outdoors. Um, and that just goes back to um, Indigenous ways of learning are often different to Western ways of learning. Yeah, I, I did find, I, I, you know, I saw something many years ago in a documentary and I can't find it again. And I'm, I'm sure it was in Australia where they had indigenous children. And what they found was that, you know, if they, indigenous children could memorize um, a, a grouping of different objects, like say different colored rocks, or different sizes uh, versus better than um, like children more Western educated, but the Western educated could memorize a series of numbers better. And so yeah, and and we would assume that 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 would would be somehow linked to their early experiences in life. That, uh -huh. that perhaps those it, you know it's it's more valued within indigenous culture to be spending more time. Um, connected to the environment, for example, because we know, especially for Indigenous Australians, I can't really speak for any other Indigenous groups, um, is that, that, that for Indigenous Australians, we know that that's something they strongly value is their connection to the environment. Mm -hmm. um, so how can we bring that into our education and especially our play-based learning? Yeah, it seems to me that as much as we can mix all of that, you know, um, no matter what, you know, social group we're from, the more beneficial it's going to be for our brains. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that just links back to the sort of the concept of, of uh, multicultural classrooms where we can get uh, 
the best of all cultures and all different cultural ways of learning in the in the one classroom to help all children. Right. Is that um, multicultural classrooms? Is that something that's? Can you speak? Tell us about that. Oh yeah. Okay. Sure. No worries. Um. Like, I mean, something we're talking about in class right now is actually is is in the first century. Um, we're more likely to see much more culturally diverse classrooms and different cultures have different approaches to, um, to, to early learning. Um, and they have different backgrounds, different ways of thinking about the world. Um, and how can we embrace that and, and utilize that within the classroom? So um, if we have a child from a minority culture, maybe a child who's come from Vietnam or, or wherever it is, and they've, they've come into a classroom where they're the only child from that culture in the classroom, they may actually have something interesting from their background or from their prior knowledge that they may be able to contrib contribute uh, to the class that uh, that um, may give us a new perspective or a broader perspective on the issue that we wouldn't have thought about if that child wasn't in the class in the first place. All right, so, so, so some interesting new teaching techniques are, are arising in, in the new, in this new world, huh? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I'm sure there's much more to learn um, as we, uh, as sort of Western educators become more educated on, on, on a variety of different cultural approaches. Wow, that's fantastic. Okay, good. All right, risky play. Can you tell us about risky play? <laughs> All right, let's do it. Um, I too love this concept of risky play because it sort of challenges um, our uh, initial, perhaps our initial um, uh, assumptions or, or desires as a parent. Often as parents, we want to impose um, uh, safety upon our children for obvious, for obvious reasons. We, we want our children to be safe. Um, as educators as well, um, we're increasingly aware of safety requirements due to sort of um, new laws being introduced, especially through the 1990s and 2000s, um, mm -hmm. around making sure that we're, it's our obligation to make sure that the children now are safe. Um, there is the concern, though, that this this new sort of paradigm of thinking about safety first may have sort of gone too far, and that by being overly safe, we are preventing our children from from coming across uh, the physical um, all sorts of different challenges that they would have been able to come across prior to this sort of paradigm of of, of um, safety first. Um, some of the benefits of taking risks as a child is if the child goes, um, let's let's say a child's outside climbing a tree. That's kind of the, the cliche, obvious one to talk about. If we allow the child to do that, what benefits are they going to get out of that? Maybe they'll develop confidence, self-confidence um, from seeing it, seeing a risk, seeing a challenge, and achieving and overcoming that challenge. By overcoming that challenge, they've developed self-confidence. They may also be extending their capabilities, physical capabilities whilst climbing that tree because they're trying out new ways of using their body that they hadn't tried out before. If we restrict the child from doing that, then we, we've, we've, we've denied them of an opportunity to develop self-confidence, to try out new ways of using their body. Um, and we may also be, um, be uh, restricting their self-regulate and identify risks and, and assess risks. If it's constantly the adult who is assessing the risk and not the child, the child doesn't develop the skill of risk assessment, um, which in, in, when, in later years is obviously a terrible thing for a child not to have because a child at some point in their life is going to have to be able to make risks. 
uh, without an adult hovering over their shoulder. Um, so one thing that I like to think about is what is the um, what is the worst case scenario mm -hmm. in this situation? And if the worst case scenario in this situation is a grazed knee or a, some temporary pain that will go away within 24 hours, is that really um, that bad? When the best thing that can happen is a huge cognitive jump for that child or a huge physical jump for that child or a huge psychological jump for that child that they've developed those skill, these new skills. Um, so the, risk, the concept of risky play just challenges parents and educators to stand back and think. I think especially parents, because I think unfortunately educators are quite sort of constrained um, that they do have to be very, very um, conservative uh, because it's their job. It's, it's written to their job that they need to be conservative. It's not their child. They need to protect the child in, in many sure. ways. Right, right. Um, but but for, for parents, you know, have a think. You know, what's, what's the risk? Um, and maybe the risk isn't that bad compared to the, the benefits, for, the developmental benefits for your child. Um, one other thing I'll just quickly add is the forest schools. You may have heard of forest it's an approach that has kind of really, really um, grown, especially, well, it started in Scandinavia in the 1990s and 2000s, it jumped over to the UK. I've noticed in Australia, there's a few popping up called bush schools as well. The concept of forest schools is essentially children are allowed to take measured risks in outdoor environments and exposed for long periods of time to these outdoor environments and risks, in, in risks are involved. I mean, anyone can jump onto YouTube and type in forest schools on YouTube and see the sorts of things that are incredible, how young they are and how skilled they are at using things like sharp knives, fire. Yeah, um, yeah it's incredible. And it's because they've had that, that prolonged exposure to these risky things that they're, they're quite confident with them. Right, yeah, and therefore safer with them. So going back to your tree example, one more, that's also pro problem solving trying to get up up that tree and figuring out how to learn your your body i mean that's a big thing uh you know popular about mountain climbers or cliff climbers that, that those are extreme problem solving skills hmm. um one thing i noticed uh traveling i was traveling in mexico um and you've probably noticed this traveling too but you know, the, walking around the city, it, it was a very dangerous environment. There was walking out on a, on a pier out in the ocean and there's just gaping holes through it. Um, there's there's uh, electrical wires sticking out of, um, tele, you know, the, the light poles and just uh, people doing construction work with no safety nets below them and drop, you know, things could drop them. Um, so very unsafe environment and yet children running around and never getting hurt they were very they seem to be very aware of that environment mm -hmm. and and um could keep themselves safe and i was just thinking to myself that you know an american child is is not going to survive in this environment for a day um but those mm -hmm. children seem to be very attuned to it so uh yeah, and the, yeah. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, is have we gone too far? Are we, are we doing damage by being too late? Um, and and my, the, the, the one thing I like to encourage is, is to, to sit back and reflect on, you know, what is the learning opportunity here and how can I achieve this whilst taking measured risks? Right, right, yeah. yeah. So, um, 
yeah, you can imagine as uh, Kung Fu instructors that, we, you know, part of our job is pushing people through risk and, and, and yeah. adversity. And uh, I mean, that's what we do. My, my wife is constantly, she, I think it was a quote from a movie, but she would always, you know, a kid would come crying back or something and she'd say, there's no crying in Kung Fu. I think it's a movie reference, but the, the, uh, most of the time the child would just look at her and go, okay, and just stop crying and go back in and play, you know? Um, yeah. But one, what we observed going back to, you know, how I described the school. So we had that, our school set up to where we had the mat. It was very closed off from out, outside observers. And one thing we would do is we would allow 15 minutes before class of this of absolute chaos whatever whatever they wanted to do they could um and we just you know bit our tongues to not intervene and it was amazing the things that we observed because it, they just you know but first the child walking in there and never having seen seen this in in their entire life it was a total shock so they would sit on the sidelines which is what, what do we call that what type of play the uh um, observing, play, yeah. observing play in in absolute shock, um, and then eventually they bring they get themselves in, and so we had for one you know these these big structures of poles that held the bags, and then some children would climb those poles, and they were high. They were you know twelve feet high. They could hurt themselves. But what, one thing we observed is that. The other children in the room instinctively, if the child was new and had did not have the skills at climbing that pole, they would go and they'd grab all these bags and anything soft they would find and, and they would maneuver it and keep it under that child the whole time. We didn't instruct them to do this. This is just something that was completely um, that they did, did naturally. And then if a child was going up that was obviously skilled, they'd completely ignore it. And that child could be 14 feet in the air, you know, swinging around and, and they would do nothing. Mm. So that was a really... Yeah, something that, something that you, that you just brought up there, the, the moving the mats to sort of keep each other safe, is uh, perhaps as an educator, we can, when we are taking these measured risks, we can have very explicit conversations with our students about how to sort of mitigate the risk so that whilst we're taking the risk, well, what, are, what sort of do we have to sort of ensure that the it's as safe as possible? Um, and having those explicit conversations with children about how to assess the risk, um, ensure that we're, we're putting in place safety measures and then going and doing it, um, is teaching the children risk management as well, which is obviously something that's important right, to us. Right. Right. Obviously, as a commercial venture, we were taking a huge risk in doing this, but we we saw all these benefits and how kids developed through it. Yeah. And so we allowed it. You know, we were grinding our teeth and watching all the time, but just not intervening. But it was amazing to see. The other thing that we would see is, you know, they'd be sparring, fighting back and forth. And... Um, you know, if, if the two were of equal size and fairly equal skill, they just, they'd go at it hard. Um, as you know, they're pushing each other, um, harder and harder. And, um, you know, there was never anything more than maybe a, a bloody nose or something, but then you would see when a smaller child would enter that the larger would automatically drop 
the the level of participation down to where he was just barely pushing that other child beyond, but not too much. And he, you know, maybe letting them win a little bit and all that. So that was really interesting to observe, but was what was also really interesting to, to observe that if they did not, then the rest of the class would intervene. Oh, wow. So, so there was essentially no chance for bullying mm. as in this, in this, when there was no intervention from us, when there was no, now, if we, if, if adults intervened, then bullying happened because they would manipulate the situation and all that. But if there was no intervention and absolute, you know, anarchy, <laughs> then the kids would intervene and then the bullying would, would immediately cease, um, you know, and sometimes it, it, it took a few times for that bully to learn, but usually it, it completely went away by this interaction between the rest of the class that, that would observe it. Mm. So, um, I mean, to us, it seemed like just a lot of really amazing social skills were happening in that, in that chaos. Yeah, that's like, that's sort of, it's almost like an ideal that we have as educators to, to, uh, that's what we want. That environment you're describing is something that we that we aspire towards. And I think you know, in twenty in the twenty first century, in those twenty first century approaches to education, one of our, our strong focuses is on um, teaching skills, all those social skills and the skills on how to learn, so that children can eventually enter these sorts of environments that you're you're describing and be very effective self educators and, and co educators with one another. Ideally, the teacher um, steps back and back and back and back until the children are, you know, are working in that, that sort of environment you're describing, which is obviously incredibly yeah. Uh, uh, valuable. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we had the advantage of, of having a lot more physical waivers, and I'm sure in a school environment, you know, we it couldn't be done to the, to the level we did it. Yeah. But it does seem to be beneficial to, to move in that direction as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. Um, Anyway, and interesting. Yeah, we didn't. Uh, the 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 fact that bullying itself and bullying is such a big problem that the bullying absolutely disappeared in that environment without intervention. We found just fascinating. Mm -hmm. So, um, anyway, so yeah, uh, as you say, play is serious work, isn't it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it's uh, it's as I said right at the start. Uh, um, you know, one of the things I really try to encourage amongst my students is is to move beyond the idea play is good because it's fun to play is good because of all of these enormous holistic benefits for a child. And by breaking it down into these different categories, hopefully we can start getting our students to think about um, why it is that they're introducing play to the children in their classrooms and, and what sort of play has, what sort of benefits come from different sorts of play. Right, right. And we're, some of the, so you mentioned Montessori and I know there's there's all these schools, Waldorf and different schools of thought on it. Um, were those different schools just kind of more focused on one sort and another? Or, and another? Is that what was going on with some of those? Or, and is it beneficial to really try and mix as much as possible? I like to think it is beneficial to mix them as much as possible. Um, primarily because, you, I, you know, you look at different forms of play and you see there's, there's, there's benefits for each. I mean, going back to structured versus unstructured, you can't have entirely unstructured play 
because you won't be meeting your curriculum outcomes, but you can't have entirely structured play either because you're preventing um, some of those creativity benefits that come from unstructured play. So um, being able to blend these different types of play and uh, encourage all of them at different stages in the child's life, um, I think would be um, what I would be, be trying to achieve as a teacher. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, it seems like uh, in a lot of places we have either a very far swing uh, on the spectrum or the other. So like for the unschooling, staying com almost completely in un the unschooling movement, staying almost completely in unstructured play. But then our schooling systems, at least here in the U.S., I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but um, of being so much into standardized testing and, and removing recess time and removing play and all that. Um Seems we need to find the middle, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we do, we have, of course have the very similar problem of the standardized testing, trying to get those PISA scores up in Australia that, that is obviously sort of, um, you know, for me as a teacher, it feels like it almost gets in the way of, of helping my children to learn and develop. Um, so, you know, I would obviously try to advocate as much as possible for giving as much, uh, giving a, a lot more freedom to students to, to encourage um, uh, more opportunities for trial and error, discovery, um, all the things that play provides that, that is almost being restricted because of standardized testing and, and teachers feeling as if they teach yeah. for the test constantly instead of freedom to create and be inspired. Yeah, I don't think that I've run into a single teacher that would disagree with that. I mean, that, that it it does. It's not the teachers that are that are pushing yeah. the standardized testing. It's yeah. going somewhere else, right? Mm, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, the, but those on the fronts that, that that see what helps and they they're they're not pushing it. Mm. So, is there anything we have not covered that um, is important that we should? You know, I think that we've done a pretty thorough job of this uh, play-based learning discussion, Phil. Okay, very good. Yeah. Then um, where can, so you've got your blog, is that the best people place for people to contact you or, or just to find more information? Yeah, so um, I mean, my blog's obviously more for university students, um, but it does obviously because I'm teaching early childhood studies, there's a lot of content on there on things like play-based learning and education. And, uh, uh, on my about page, you'll obviously be able to catch my email address if you want to get in touch um, mm -hmm. in the future. Yeah. Very good. Well, I certainly find your blog uh, fascinating. So I, I think parents will and just about the, the whole process of uh, learning is fascinating to me. Um, so thank you very much. Uh, this has been really an awesome discussion. I've learned a lot from this and, and your blog. So thanks very much for coming on. Thank you for listening to the Learning Success Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. We also hope you have learned something useful, something that you can take back and improve your life with today. If you would like to say thank you, the best way for you to do that is to share this podcast with a friend. Help us help others along this journey. And if you haven't already, please rate and comment on the podcast. Every rating helps us and helps this podcast get out to more people. We appreciate it and we appreciate you. Thank you again and make today a great day. No one should have to live with a learning difficulty.